In this episode of our podcast series on precision medicine, hosted by myself, Anna Christofidis, the owner of Impact Medicom, we discuss genomic testing in prostate cancer. Our episode focuses on the evolution and uptake of genetic testing in prostate cancer. We discuss testing for homologous recombination repair genes and their association with prognosis and influence on treatment decisions. We also discuss somatic versus germline testing and who is responsible for ordering genomic tests. Our guest on today's episode is Dr. Neil Fleschner, who is the Martin Barkin Chair and a Professor of Surgery at the Division of Urology at the University of Toronto in Toronto, Ontario. He is also affiliated with Mount Sinai Hospital, Princess Margaret Cancer Centre, and the Toronto General Hospital. Hope you enjoy it. All right, so welcome, Dr. Fleschner, and thanks so much for joining us virtually on this cold day in November. Good afternoon. <laughs> thanks for joining us. Uh, in past episodes of our Precision Medicine and Oncology series, we discussed the growing importance of genomic testing in cancers of the lung, colon, and ovaries to help guide management decisions. So I'm just wondering, you know, to start, can you tell us how the need for genomic biomarker testing has evolved for prostate cancer? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, given your introduction, I think you're, we all acknowledge that maybe prostate's been a little bit behind in this regard compared to some of the other cancers. And, and I think, you know, only recently have we entered this, if you want to call it precision medicine or genomic era, where for really for the first time, we're starting to have agents that sort of, you know, like a lock and key will fit in well in terms of the biologic perturbations that, that, that the, the prostate cancer cells are, are being driven by, right? So this idea of matching up the right drug for the right patient at the right time, really that's the essence of personalized medicine, precision medicine, and particularly with the PARP inhibition space uh, starting to open up in prostate cancer really is the first major, if you will, a stake in the ground, uh, but but I do think very much um, you know will be a changing field in, in the years to come. Yeah, that's uh, that's great uh, and very insightful, and, and I'm hoping that it will catch up over time. So, you know, when should testing for, for example, homolo- homologous uh, recombination repair genes be performed, uh, and, and which patients do you feel should really be tested? Right. You know, I think you know it's it's quite interesting because I think it depends on your philosophy. I think we would all agree that currently that patients with castration-resistant prostate cancer or advanced prostate cancer should have uh, some sort of testing done for homologous uh, recombinant repair deficiency or, or, or DNA repair defects, whatever you want to call it. You know, there is also a subset, and certainly from my point of view as a, a doctor very in- interested in prevention, I'm starting to believe that even many men even earlier in the disease should be tested, albeit only for the germline abnormality. And just to clarify that, right, you can have a, a DNA repair defect or an HRRD defect one of two ways, right? You, you can be born with one or your cancer cells can acquire one. If you're born with one, that's called a germline abnormality. And if your cancer cells acquire them, that's called a somatic abnormality. The somatic and germline are cover about 20 to 25% of, of very advanced prostate cancers. The reason why, so, so clearly patients with castration-resistant disease should have this assessed because we now have a therapeutic 
opportunity for them that would only exist if they have those abnormalities. But the germline abnormalities have relevance not so much for the patient in as much as the fact if you have a germline abnormality, your, your biologic relatives are now at risk for a host of problems, right? Whether it could be additional cancers, male breast cancer, female breast cancer, ovarian cancer, malignant melanoma, pancreatic cancer, and others. So if, you know, there's an opportunity in some cases to save a son or a sibling or a aunt or a nephew or niece. So again, it depends what your philosophy is as a clinician. Certainly, if you're just treating that patient, it would only be the castration-resistant patient. But if you want to have a broader program, you might want to think about, you know, what we call cascade testing or or starting to trace back the uh, genetic relatives in order to identify and, and hopefully intervene before they get a horrible problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, you know, how does confirmation of these mutations, if they're found, how, how does that impact prostate cancer prognosis? Right. So if you, I mean, the unfortunate sad story is that in general, if you have one of these abnormalities, you tend to get cancer earlier, more aggressive, poorly respond to treatment and, and not surprisingly die earlier. So they're, they're not great things to have overall. That's the bad news. The good news is there are now a class of drugs, the PARP inhibitors, which would only really work in those patients. So even though it was overall bad news, if you have these abnormalities, at least we're making strides in terms of tailor-made therapies that really only tend to work in that setting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I know you talked a little bit about the idea of whether patients should be tested earlier in their disease. What is your feeling about when they should be tested for this mutation? Right. Well, we, we at our center, Princess Margaret, uh, we tend to have a, a really widely embraced what's called the NCCN or the National Comprehensive Cancer Network's criteria for testing which are just slightly perhaps different than Ontario's, but nonetheless, it's, it, you know, any metastatic patient, any patient with extremely high-risk disease, patients with strong family history and patients who have particularly Ashkenazi Jewish descent because those uh, disproportionately harbor these, some of these uh, germline mutations. Mm-hmm. Okay, great, great. And so once the patient would be determined to have this gene, how would you treat them differently, you know, going through the treatment algorithm? Right. So just to be clear, it's a set of genes, right? There's, there's, there's probably 16 of them. Uh, the most common being the BRCA2 gene, but there's also others, the ATM, CHEP2, um, BRCA1, and uh, PALBT. There's a, a panel, if you will. Uh, how, how it affects treatment, uh, I think uh, on many levels, one I think we would adopt a more aggressive approach for patients with non-metastatic disease. And I think, as an example, active surveillance in early prostate cancer, if you have a low-risk low cancer, if those patients possess some of these abnormalities, you may say, well, maybe we shouldn't adopt a, a, you know, a surveillance approach to them, but instead we should be more aggressive with, with those tumors. Of course, the problem is most patients with those biopsies don't fulfill criteria to get tested, but that's a whole other issue. But m- most of the time, it's patients with advanced disease who get tested. And, you know, we now, as I alluded to earlier, have a pharma uh, 
pharmaceutical option, the PARP inhibitors for, for patients in that abnormality who have the abnormality. And there's also even potentially additional chemotherapeutic options. So cisplatin, which is a drug, common chemotherapeutic drug, but not commonly used in prostate cancer uh, because it tends not to be very effective does seem to provide some benefit for patients with these anomalies as well. So not only smart, new kind of sexy drugs, but some old ones too could be pulled off the shelf if patients have these anomalies. Hmm, hmm. Great, great. And I'm just wondering in terms of your, I know you're saying that most patients don't get tested until they're in the metastatic setting. If they could be tested earlier though, even let's say as screening, what would you, how might that influence treatment or even screening for the disease? Well, we don't know. I mean, so you ask a very good question, but at the end of the day, we don't know. We know that the impact of screening, let's take it right back to screening in prostate cancer. It's a very controversial topic, but screening for prostate cancer for overall reduces the risk of death not as much as you think, right? It's by about uh, by about 20%. And these are large studies that were done about a decade and a half ago. But I think it's fair to say that if patients had known anomalies, then we would be screening or at least be hyper attentive to their organs at risk. It shouldn't only be the prostate, right? Because the other organs, as we mentioned, skin, pancreas, breast, et cetera. And then of course, what we don't know yet, because this is all so new, is do those methods save lives. And, you know, given that prostate cancer screening only saves a certain, not a huge proportion of lives, we don't know, but it's not implausible that screening these very high-risk patients may not provide any benefit. And there's paradigm for this. So if you look at ovarian cancer, if you look at pancreatic cancers, which are both, by the way, driven by some of the same genes, well-done randomized trials have shown no benefit to early detection which is pretty um, disappointing, meaning they start off so aggressive early, but by the time you find them, they're still, they're no longer curable. So yes, right now we would do this. We are at our center. I have a personal interest uh, starting a research program and offering prostatectomy or prostate removal to unaffected men, almost like the Angel- Angelina Jolie phenomena many years ago, where, where, you know, many women now who are gene carriers have their breasts and ovaries removed. We're looking into this in prostate cancer, albeit they'll probably be limited to the BRCA2 subpopulation because they're the particularly most at risk of all of the genetic anomalies. So that's that's for those from screening. And as I alluded to, for the more localized disease, I, I, I think we would adopt a more as clinically aggressive approach as we can for these patients. Having said all that, as testing becomes mainstreamed, cheaper, which it's starting to, and we start you know, there's going to be an opportunity to do a lot of clinical trials in this space to learn. Uh, so, so it'll be a, a fascinating time of, of learning as well in terms of what works, what doesn't work for these men. And, and again, it could also be their affected mm-hmm. sisters, women, uh, sisters, daughters, nieces, and aunts as well. Yeah, for sure. Which of the genes of the panel that you mentioned are important to evaluate? And what proportion of patients with metastatic disease have mutations in those genes? Right. So generally it breaks out quarter have overall will have a mutation, half of them born with, half of them acquired, and then roughly half of those, 5.8, say call it 6% for memory point of view, would be BRCA2. That's the real bad player. 
And then you start getting, uh, eight, as I mentioned earlier, ATN, Check2, BRC1, PAL B2, and a variety of others. The main big ones are, you know, ATM, Bracket 1, 2, and, and Check2. So those are the, I think, the four biggest ones. But again, today, the whole cascade of DNA repair involves all, is not just a one gene phenomena. So it's not surprising that multiple genes play a role in repairing DNA. And therefore, you could have multiple mutations effectively causing the same physiologic defect, if you will, or genetic defect. Mm -hmm. So why is it important to do both the somatic and the germline testing in these patients? Right. I, I mean, I think why it's important to do both is very simple. If you use a germline-only approach, you will miss half uh, of the anomalies. So you'll only find half of the eligible patients for uh, therapies that may benefit them. The reason why you want to also test the germline in those who have somatic mutations is when you test the tissue, just to be clear, you know, if you have a germline mutation, every cell in your body has it. So you can take a blood sample or a cheek swab. It doesn't have to be the, the cancer tissue per se. And that'll give you the answer to get, but you'll miss half of them if you only do that. Now, if you test the tumor tissue, if you have it, or you use a what's called a ctDNA or a circulating tumor DNA assay, meaning you can detect junk bits of DNA from dying cells in the body and the plasma and interrogate it and find these abnormalities. You don't know if that patient is acquired, in other words, a somatic mutation or a germline mutation. And because, you know, again, we, we, want, we don't only want to help that patient, but perhaps save lives from a familial point of view. That's why you kind of got to do both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, and um, and you already talked a, a bit about how a germline mutation assessment would provide information to the patient's families. What was the procedure in or in that case? Uh, what would you do in that case if you discovered that? A family uh, a yeah. problem. So, yeah. you know, we're very fortunate. We've set up a program here and I'm very fortunate to have a fantastic genetic counselor who works my clinic, Emily Thane. But our basic plan here is when we get a patient who's, who's got a germline mutation, we, you know, through our program, we call in the relatives, you know, and talk to them. We'll then get them tested because remember, if you're if just a relative doesn't, unless you're an identical twin, doesn't mean you're going to get it. It's 50% for a first degree relative, 25% for a second degree relative, 125 for a third degree relative. We would call in the, uh, and or contact those family members. We could bring them in if they're in the neighborhood or in the province, or we can direct them themselves to get tested. That's all covered in Ontario, by the way. So that's amazing. And most parts of Canada. You know, again, so that's, we, you know, the dominoes start falling, as I like to call it. And we start uh, doing traceback or contact uh, tracing and try and get these patients enrolled into programs where they are being, as we talked about, managed and or screened for their, for their cancer risks. Mm -hmm. And who in the team is responsible really for ordering these tests? It's a great question. I, I think this is an evolving field right now. And I think, you know, historically, this has been in the realm of medical genetics or, or genetic counselors. But I, I think if you look at the capacity of those practitioners and, and the capacity of our system, and now, you know, when common diseases, breast and prostate cancer are now requiring 
uh, genetic analyses. I, I just, there's just no other feasible way to do this without doing what's called mainstreaming, right? So we need to get clinicians. So I myself, as a clinician, for years have been ordering genetic testing. And the model, which used to be, if you want a gene test, go talk to the genetic counselor and he or she will talk to you. Uh, and you may get an appointment in nine months, and then you can decide what you want to do. So having the clinicians order the tests, and then the genetic counsel, medical genetics team, really focusing on the positives. So that's a bit of a, a, a shift. And I think the shift in part was because the diseases affected are becoming more prevalent. Part of it also is cost. A huge role of the genetic counselors were to really ration expensive testing. So to put this in context, probably six or seven years ago, to order just a BRCA test in Ontario cost the government $8,000. You could purchase online a commercial, high-quality, scientific gene paddle of 72 genes for $250 today. So there's been a massive deflation in, in access to all of this testing. So that's also helped the mainstreaming process. Of course, it's often covered, but even if you wanted to purchase the services, they really are quite affordable. Yeah, the progress is unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it's amazing. So I know you talked a little bit about, you know, the tissue testing versus circulating tumor DNA, but what are the advantages and drawbacks of each of those methods? So again, if you only rely on the germline, you'll miss half of, of uh, potential patients who are eligible for drug therapy. So how are we going to, to do it? So one way is to either find the original tissue, meaning the prostate biopsy, and interrogate that. The other thing you could do is do a metastatic biopsy. You know, sometimes there's a metastasis and, and you can get a biopsy of it and interrogate that. The problem with that in prostate cancer is the most common site of metastasis is the bone and bone biopsies are, number one, they're painful, but secondly, they're notoriously uh, bad. There are, you, you know, 40% probably you'll get an insufficient report that you just don't get enough cellularity for the pathologist to make the call. And of course, access to the original prostate biopsy may not be so available, right? The mad, a man could have had his biopsy in Idaho or Colombia or in Afghanistan, or he could have had it 10, 15 years ago, eight years ago, and maybe the tissue uh, is sitting in the basement of some hospital, not so easy to find. To add additional layer of complexity to this onion, if you will, is even if you have fresh, high-volume tissue, about 20% of the time, you send it to the best genetics lab, you're still going to get an insufficient amount of DNA, genetic material, to actually do the test. So there are limitations of tissue, both in terms of access, can you find it, and also, can you even get it done if you have it? Then we flip to the circulating tumor DNA. As I talked about, this junk DNA that exists in the plasma. The, pla the plasma is like the sewer, you know, of, of our bodies. And it contains the junk. It's like interrogating the garbage cans of humans. You, you know what's going on in the house. That's the analogy here. The advantages of the CT DNA is it's not invasive. You don't have to do a biopsy. You just do a blood sample. The disadvantages is it's very uh, dependent on how much of that, you know, can you find the circulating tumor DNA? If you have, you know, 15 pounds of metastatic cancer in your body, it's, you, you, not surprisingly, a large proportion of your junk DNA will contain the material for analysis. 
But if you are in remission, or if you have a small volume of tumor or an early tumor, then a high proportion of those patients may have not enough of the ctDNA, again, to do an assay. So there's no perfect test in this regard. And sometimes you have to think about tackling this all three ways, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So do you feel that the adoption of an access to genomic testing for patients with metastatic disease is adequate currently? Uh, no, I think, you know, we're in flux right now and Ontario is changing quickly. Certainly germline testing, we're doing great. We've up until really kind of now, have had some access to ctDNA testing, mostly through clinical trials. And a new trial is opening, so we will have this for a while while this gets, for using the same term, mainstreamed again. And then we'll also have to think about, and then we're now starting to work in our, in our multidisciplinary groups around how to interrogate biopsy tissue. Do we reflex test? Do we only test those who we are worried about? Historically, the communication from by clinician to pathologist has been poor. Do we need to improve that? I think all the micro economies of prostate cancer care across the country are probably trying to sort this out right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So how do you feel that the uptake could be improved for testing? Mm. What would need to be done? <laughs> yeah, I, well, I think we just need to get pathways worked out. So certainly stable funding will help as opposed to, you know, we're going to offer you 500 and then what happens after the 500th is gone. But, but I, I must admit, as somebody who's generally a naysayer about how slow our system is to react, this is one I actually think we've reacted quite quickly and are really adopting a first world approach. So I'm quite, quite pleased with how this is rolling out right now in Canada. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So how could patients and healthcare professionals in general advocate to uh, healthcare systems to improve the access to testing? Well, you know, lobbying, I guess, right? I mean, I think all we can do is make our case to our payers and, and our decision makers. But, you know, I think patient groups can play a big role here. You know, there are a lot of prostate cancer support groups. I think butting up perhaps with some of the the breast cancer and, you know, female cancer survivorship groups, you know, women historically have been way better at attracting attention to their cause than men. And I think we could learn a lot from them. And there's no reason why we can't buddy up with them because at the end of the day, it's the same genes in, 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 the, in the brothers of the sisters or the, you know, the sons of the mothers. So it, it's a, this is a natural fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, well, this is uh, this has been really uh, informative, Dr. Fleshner. Thank you so much for this episode and and covering all the important aspects of genetic testing in patients with prostate cancer. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. <laughs>